Welcome back, everybody, to Live Longer, the podcast. And as I continue the second series, The Art of Living, in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University and Hand in Hand with Iona, a patient-centric tool developed by myself and colleagues to put the right information at the right time into the hands of patients to drive improved outcomes. And today I have a really, really interesting guest. She's actually a fellow countryman born in Limerick in Ireland, in Southern Ireland. She did her exit exams, the equivalent of our A-levels, at an extraordinarily young age. She was the youngest of five siblings, four older brothers who were her greatest mentors, and she moved to do nursing in the UK. And very quickly, she realised her calling to university as a psychologist. But straight after university, she was recruited to become a chartered accountant and worked on many, many projects, including tax audits, which showed her resilience and tenacity for the finer details. She was subsequently recruited into the health sector and managed strategic health authorities and moved to Medway in Kent as deputy CEO and really, really turned around services there before then moving on to Royal West Sussex, where she's now CEO and was the CEO of the year, the first woman to receive this award. And this led on to further awards, including her receiving an honour from the Queen as Dame in 2019, which is an incredible honour. And this woman is truly inspirational. She has patient care at the centre of everything she do. She's amazing at problem solving and she still has so much more to give. So join me in a very warm welcome to Dame Marianne Griffiths. Marianne, welcome. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you. Well, listen, it's a real honour to have you here. And we spent a little time exploring how you got to where you got to. And I think it's fascinating. And I'd love to just start off and give our listeners a sense of how you got from doing your leaving cert at such a young age to being all the way CEO of a major NHS trust and turning around performance from, you know, fair to, to good to outstanding in the Care Quality Commission assessment. So where did it start off this love of nursing in Ireland? Thank you. Um, well, I think it started, you know, obviously in my youth in many degrees and um, and some personal sort of experiences with ill health in, in my own family. Uh, I'm kind of worried, if I'm being honest, about some of the ways that that was handled and treated at the time. But I always thought, to be honest, that I probably would leave Ireland and spread my wings. And I think part of that was, as you can imagine, I had four older brothers that I think I wanted to slightly escape a paternalistic environment and, and just kind of, yeah, just develop myself, discover who I was kind of away from that. So when I did do my leaving certificate, as we've just mentioned, applied to be a nurse, trained as a nurse in the UK and then doubly qualified in orthopaedics as it was time. And my kind of experience of that was wonderful overall, but there were moments there during that four years, five years that I did my nursing where I didn't feel my voice was as listened to as other voices. And I think it was quite a hierarchical uh, system that I entered. And this is a long time ago. This is over 40 years ago now. And I think things have changed, fortunately. But I remember thinking I could just kind of feel a bit angry about it, or I needed to do something to acquire a little more um, voice or credibility or whatever it was that I was missing. And, and therefore, I decided to go you know, and do a number of other things. So one of those was to go to university. I'd always wanted to read psychology and um, had the most wonderful time doing that at Exeter University. And there I kind of thought, well, I probably need some other 
skills as well. So, for example, business skills, and was very fortunate to have been recruited by who were then Pete Marwick McClintock, currently KPMG, did my chartered accounting training with them, learned a huge amount of skills, genuinely. And all of that, I think, has helped me enormously, all three of those experiences uh, in becoming um, a chief exec and doing what I do now. Mm, and as you alluded to, it was very much hierarchical and, and may I dare say it, man's world when you started yep. off nursing and when I started off medicine too. And particularly coming from the Irish sector, it yep. was particularly so. And did that influence you? Because, I mean, being the first woman to be CEO of the year is an incredible achievement. Were you sort of motivated, you know, to become more empowered because of that environment? I think I was. I mean, I wasn't driven by ambition to be the best chief exec in the year or anything like that. But I was driven about making a difference. And I am driven, still remain driven about women having equal voices in this. And I do think it's really important. And there's something, you know, about fairness and equity that's at the heart of my soul in this, if I'm if I'm being honest. And, and my experience, even as I got more senior, was still a little bit like that. There still felt like a more male club were the rulers. And I think it's, you know, it was beholden on all of us like to do this in a different way. And I don't know whether it's timing or or whatever. You know, I do think there are different styles of management. And I've all, always really, really understood that a leader is only as good as those shoulders she sits on or he sits on. And the point of your job is to make those shoulders strong and recognize and, and honor them. And, and I think sometimes being a female and having different approaches to things can help in that. And I've certainly found that to be true. But it's very much about, you know, your job is about followership. It's not about telling people what to do. Or I, I think that makes a big difference. And I think it's made a difference in our organization. And I hope it will continue to do so. Well, you certainly lead an organisation where you're enabling from the front lines and you're very much focusedly, outwardly focused on your, your team and, and the people who work for you. Because one of the reasons this interview came about, of course, was one of your lovely colleagues, Masood Timery, who I interviewed, highly recommended you as one of the best CEOs he'd ever worked with. And so that's quite a nice accolade from, from a male colleague, isn't it? Brings a wheel full circle. It does, actually. And it's so interesting. And um and again, that, that's lovely to hear, but I, I, I do think it's important. And one of the things, you know, which I hope Masood would have felt is that, you know, and I, I really want to keep building on this model of compassionate leadership. And I think to do that is, first of all, to be humble because you don't always get things right, which is absolutely true. And I've become a little bit kinder to myself, I have to be honest, in having some allowable weaknesses, which we, we all have. And, and, you know, that's part of being human, which, which is great. But I think part of the compassionate leadership style is really about, I mean, genuinely listening to people's concerns, trying to work out where they've come from, you know, where they're going, what the motivation is behind it. And I have to say also actively accepting criticism sometimes. And I think, you know, we all find that quite difficult. But really, if if you're happy that you're not perfect, the criticism is easier to take. But it does mean that people open up. They tell you about things. You can deal with them. You can work with them to solve problems. You know, you can give you can take every interaction as an opportunity to positively thank and reinforce and give encouragement to people and let them, you know, innovate, as indeed you, you will have seen from Masood, you know, through his artwork, through his work, 
you know, it's, it's, it's just an amazing privilege to be part of that and seeing people flourish as they develop and, and hopefully been able to help in somewhat like that too. And, and I think, you know, it's also coming from a position of wanting to improve. And perhaps I will talk a little bit more about some, you know, epiphany moments I've had throughout my career, which have genuinely changed the way I've approached my management and my leadership style. Well, tell me about those, because this whole concept of active listening is at the very heart of Changemakers programme, which is what we're trained through the University of Cambridge at, to go out and try to devolve our learnings. But it's really through active listening. And when you're in a position of leadership, it's easier to take criticism. However, people underneath you, there's been a lot of evidence to show if you criticise people from top down, it's less useful as bottom up criticism is taken better. So this active listening from the leaders is the key to cultural change, really. So I'd be interested to hear those moments of epiphany. No, absolutely. Um, and, and one of those, it's really interesting. In, in about 2014, I remember, you know, we just got through, this was on the Western Sussex side before we merged with Brighton and have become University Hospital Sussex. But we got a bit stuck. Our staff survey stuck. Money was just beginning to go a little bit out. But I could, just could feel that if we continued the way we were going, we weren't going to improve and things weren't going to get better. And one of the things I remember going is listen to actually somebody speak at a page And that was about Virginia Mason in the US and the way that they had managed to completely change the whole nature of culture and performance of their organization over a number of years. But I thought, because I'd heard a lot of good speeches, and I thought, well, I'll go and test it. A couple of my colleagues, including a chief medical director and a director of HR, went out. And this was the epiphany moment, because we went to the ward. Some, one of those was the ED, the emergency department, so the A&E. And I observed how the staff member had people huddled around a board and was saying, this is just, Marianne, it's just not good enough that our patients have to work 15 minutes for an x-ray when they come into ED. So we're doing some work to get it down to 12. And I remember thinking at the time, blimey, 15 minutes sounds pretty good to me. If that could happen <laughs> in organisations, I have mm -hmm. to be honest. And it wasn't just that. It was everywhere I went, the staff spoke about everything that motivated them was about improving the staff experience. And I came back. And I asked my chairman, you need to go and the rest of my exec team need to go. I want you to feel it because it's something you have to feel. I can't explain it to you. Just go and feel. They did that. And it was just a three-day induction course that we did. And I came back and he had felt it. That was the year where we decided to invest, went out for a partner because we also recognise as a board. I didn't quite know how to do that. How do you get your, at the time, seven and a half thousand staff speaking like that about their organisation? So that was kind of really the gestation period of what we now call our patient first programme. And we had a partner. It happened to be Theta Care, not Virginia Mason. They're very similar approaches, uh, came to work with us. And as it happened, it was KPMG was the other partner. And they worked with us for a year to really set up, I suppose, the method in which you do really empower your staff and how you can systematize that in an organization across, as we had then, three hospitals. And basically, of course, there are some simple principles. You know, you need to align all of your improvement efforts in your organization 
to a handful of things, not scattergun across. You know, you need to equip your staff with the tools they need to, to be able to do things like structure problem solving and improvement. You need to train the front line in certain things so that they can run an improvement huddle. And you need to engage them in everything that's about improvement and the organisation. But it's very disciplined. The whole way we manage the organisation changed to reflect all of that. And the joy, and it was a joy, and I really mean this, is in about 18 months later, we had our CQC inspection. It was our first CQC inspection. And, and the outcome of that was we did get outstanding on both of our acute sites. But the thing, that, that was lovely. But the thing that really made, for me, the difference and just said, wow, this is the way to do it, is the staff comments that they had. They had to open more rooms, this is the inspectors, because so many staff wanted to come to them to tell them about their stories of improvement and how things had happened. And I kind of got that, you know, Virginia Mason, oh yeah moment. It was just kind of amazing. It doesn't make it any easier. The challenges, which are currently really real, i.e. there's not enough staff, the demand outweighs our capacity and the money is always a challenge. You don't get rid of those challenges, but I do think it helps you deal with the challenges in the most effective way possible. Mm. So you you actually put a system around it. Do you think your experience in accountancy doing all those tax audits really helped bring that rigour and understanding? <laughs> I suppose there's something because it is based on a lean methodology about um you know, some rational and systematized thinking, absolutely. But I didn't do it on my own. I mean, this is the thing. It was co-created with the organization. And as I say, it, it also involved, you know, us all having to behave differently. So, you know, the people who were successful in the first half of my career, including myself at that point, we were very, as I call it, cape on, you know, mm. yeah, we can fix this. You go out, you fix things. You completely have to invert that, which is you do not do that, but you coach people. You do not give them the answer. Your whole your whole style of inter interaction is coaching because they need to sort it. Quite frankly, they're the ones who have the solutions to the problems. And when we do a daily huddle on all of our wards, you know, it's a 15-minute huddle. You know, people put improvement tickets or problems they want to solve. And it is just wonderfully nourishing watching them solve their own problems. Some of those problems are going to be too big for a single unit. Of course they are, and they get cascaded up. But it's teaching a different style of leadership and management, and that makes it more sustainable because the trouble with having, you know, a leader that is, yay, we can do this, is it's it, it's passing, it's charisma, it's not kind of sustained. Mm. So I think it does work in a more sustainable fashion. And I, I think, you know, we could say that the second CQC was resolved for Western was even better than the first. And that was at a time when we were supporting Brighton because actually our staff had really learned how to implement the message and could do that without us having to be anywhere near them, if I'm being honest. So it was a genuine reinforcement to me of the power of the people in your organisation and your job is to unleash their improvement muscle and let them flourish. Mm, you really got under the skin of your people, didn't you? And understood the psychology of change, which was probably a nod back to your university undergraduate degree as a psychologist. Yeah. And and, and of all of the three things I've done, it's interesting because people say you've got your clinical work, you've done your psychology and you've got, you know, all, all great skills. But I absolutely would say this categorically. The most important of those skills are relationships and people it is the people bit. 
that is all you can you can acquire skills you know you can acquire this you can acquire that you have to really want to do relationships and see those as important. And, and again, you know, it was interesting with, with Masood and listening to your podcast, which was just wonderful with him. But, you know, he had a vision for our, you know, state of the art eye unit in our Southlands. He had a vision for using art as therapy as part of that. You know, he had a driving vision. All he needed from us as the organisation was to support you know, the empowerment to do that. And people can do great things when they're empowered. Absolutely. And I have visited that unit and it's a remarkable achievement. And I've watched patients there and they feel almost at home. And isn't that unusual that you feel at home in a hospital um, organisation? Because normally it's a very scary place. So you really are putting patients first, which I know is your mandate and one of the reasons for your success, I guess. Thank you. No, I I hope it is. It's not just me, of course. It is all of the team that do all of this. And, you know, it's great to watch, but they deliver. I'm afraid I only enable. It's them that deliver. Mm. But you you mentioned about relationships and I couldn't agree more. But I think some people are naturally good at communication and relationships. And and hopefully you and I have both kissed the Blarney Stone. It gives us a little (laughs) bit of a help (laughs) in that regard, I think. And um, of that too, I have to say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, now in your position, you've achieved so much, you know, you've got the right credentials training, you've got the relationship communication skills, you've demonstrated you can bring a trust from failing to thriving. And you've got all the awards, including a damehood, which is incredible. But what's next? Where, where can you go from here? And, you know, what are your strategic objectives now as CEO of Brighton um, Royal Sussex yeah. Trust? Well, genuinely, what I think the next step for me is to be hand on the baton. And I think that's really important, which is, you know, creating future sustainable leadership. And and that will happen at some point. But for me, what I'm certainly getting far more into is that we've set up an academy in the organisation, which is about patient first and the method that I've been talking about. And we've been trialling that actually with two of our other fellow NHS organisations. And the driver for this for me is that the NHS spends an awful lot of money on management consultancy and it has more difficulty with looking at what's good in its own backyard than it does with paying, you know, millions of pounds for support that occasionally, um, you know, people would have told them. So the bit that we're trying to do is to work with teams. um, And as I say, we've piloted that, but we've now got um, a waiting list, actually, which is fantastic. And to work with them for a year to kind of put in what we would call, you know, get their strategic direction really simple and understandable and cascaded through the organisation. Build in the bits that we talked about, about the method, which is, you know, how do you make improvement part of every day life. It's not just an improvement director. How do you really make it the way that you set the vision, the values, you run the organisation and you manage the organisation? We call that some of that same strategy. You're almost franchising out. So we're franchising out and that's really, really taken off. I genuinely think that's the future for, for certainly my involvement because I feel so passionately about it. And I do genuinely think we can make a difference and support our colleagues who are all going through a phenomenally uh, difficult post-pandemic or not quite post-pandemic experience at the moment, you know, faced with enormous waiting lists and, mm. and you know, tired staff. And I do think, you know, we all have an obligation to 
you know, shine a light that there's a way out of feeling uh, about this because it has been so really so difficult and hard in the last two years for all of our staff, including in our own organisation, may I say. So I think sometimes just providing there's something at the end that we can do and reach for is important. Mm. And you mentioned sustainability a few times there. And, you know, this is a very important topic. So, I mean, sustainability is about the people the planet and indeed the profits. So you need to make your organisation profitable. You need to be all about the people and our environmental footprint. And if, you know, by circling the information and the learning in your trust, you are actually further enhancing the sustainability of your own change making by transitioning that to other trusts, which I think is a really unique angle on sustainability in the health sector. I think so. And, you know, and I do think it makes a difference. And I do think, you know, the, the world is full of people like myself who are, want to do the right thing, but don't always have the know-how to do it. You know, and that's when you do need to go and seek help and for somebody to support you, as as we did. And we got it, you know, which was fantastic. And it helped us. And we've built on it and divined it further for an NHS kind of regime and system. But it's really important that people can feel, as I say, humble enough or free enough or safe enough to ask for help, because I do think it's a very tough job running a hospital, running a system, running primary care, whatever it is in the NHS. It's a tough gig. It is. And let's not forget that the whole purpose of running hospitals is to enable the health of the people that are in your catchment area improve. And presumably that's one of your strategic goals to improve the health of Western Sussex. It is. It is absolutely. One of, we have five um, strategic themes and one of them is systems and partnerships, which is exactly that. And we've set up and it's part of the whole, you know, integrated care system approach. But, you know, we have a collaborative, which is an acute collaborative, but I feed into the primary care and community collaborative as I would to the mental health collaborative. So it's, it's this whole thing of having some joint priorities, which very much are about reducing inequalities in health. And that's rightly so, I have to say, because there are still fundamentally too many of them and and in in having that joint purpose then it's almost applying the method to say well you know these are the bits I can really influence and these are the bits you can influence and how can we even maximize those and even get more from our joint influence so I think there's a lot of that approach going on because we work with a good integrated care system and I've got a fantastic colleague in Adam Doyle who's the chief exec of RICS so it's brilliant Yes, and of course, Cleveland Clinic, who've now come to London, are, you know, epitomise integrated care and Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. All of these organisations, we can learn from the US, can't we? We can. And that's one of the things I do believe in. And as a matter of fact, again, from our ICS, there's a number of us who are thinking of doing a go-see to the States, to where they've done it so well, because I don't think you know what you don't know till you see something different. And and I think, again, we're, we're certainly committed to doing that and to evolve really, because I, I don't think our model, and this isn't being critical of any individual person, I don't think our model quite works for this century and this current level of demand and need. And I think we need to go and think, how have they done it in other places that may even not have as many resources as we have, to be honest. But, you know, how have they managed to do things in a different way, made it more sustainable? Well, that's one of the advantages. I mean, I worked as an academic in Toronto and of course we had large geographic distances and way back in 2000, we were doing remote clinics and virtual clinics. And then my own daughter was a patient at Sloan Kettering and they had an integrated medical care centre that sat alongside their hospital. So that's one hospital I would highly recommend for oncology service a visit to. 
No, that's really good. Yeah. And I can introduce you to people there as well, Marianne, the, more of the Irish mafia at work <laughs> behind the scenes. That's <laughs> um, pretty amazing. But it is important, isn't it, to see other people doing things. You are, you do become quite narrow and not as open as one should be. So I think it's part of, you know, it should be really a part of everyday leadership development, actually, that you're forced to do that. Mm. And when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, gosh, I mean, I'd love if I was working in your trust because you are such a role model. And what do you think are the factors that accounted for you being so successful? Was it, you know, your mother's influence? Was it the four brothers who bullied you into submission? Or <laughs> what was it? What was the secret sauce? I think genuinely, my mother, I mean, as all of our mothers, but my mother, uh, absolutely. And, you know, it's just, this is, you know, in the 60s, really, when I was growing up. And um, and if you think about it, I had four older brothers and me, and yet she never would make me do any more than my four older brothers. And indeed, you know, force them to pay me if I ironed a shirt for them or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And she always was quite egalitarian, which was I think really genuinely a role model, you know, in in her way, in a sense, uh, great believer in education, great believer in, you know, you know, how hard can it be? And I've, I've kept that with me. My mum always saying to me, how hard can it be? Mm. So it gives you the drive. I think your background gives you the drive, motivation, sets your kind of moral compass to some degree. But I think also there were other people who you've I've seen, I've witnessed who were really inspirational to me. The chief executive came to help us of theatre care, who was then now catalysis a lady called Kim Barnes. she has just been just a, a gift to me in terms of how I've what I've learned from her and what I've role modeled from her and that's been amazing I've seen some other fantastic CEOs and one I'll name out which is Andrew Morris who was in Frimley and again what I loved about their particular styles is that compassionate leadership it is all about relationships and people and you know picking out the good in people and you know making the good work and accepting that you know every Everyone's got, you're, you're allowed, you have an allowable weakness. Everyone has an allowable weakness. And that there's something just very human about that to me. And I think it's that bit of style and approach that's um, always stuck with me as the most successful way of leading people. And it's not the, you know, the, the people who are I, I, I this. It's always about we and working with people. And um, so I think that's kind of what I feel, you know, if I have been in any way successful, it's because I've modelled myself on the right people. Mm. And also it's a rather unselfish style of leadership, which can actually further increase your own stress. I mean, leading such a big, important organisation and this very unselfish style. So how do you manage your own health and well-being? Because I think your own organisation would be interested to know what does, you know, Dame Marianne Griffiths to do to keep herself sane? Oh, that's a, that's a nice one. Um, I think there's a few things. You know, I have family and, and children and now grandchildren and I have dogs, which are the best de-stressers <laughs> in the world because they make you walk. And I do, you know, I love music. I love, I am an avid reader. And I, again, I think that's something that I've never lost and I always continue to do that. I can't sleep without reading. And again, you know, just, just the normal distresses. My, my my chief nurse, though, doesn't think that's enough. So she made us um, train to climb Ben Nevis a few years ago. So I'm also getting... Um, wonderfully bullied into doing other things to raise funds which actually is quite a good good for me good for my health (laughs) so um perhaps not the pub lunches afterwards but that's fine so you know I just think it's it's things like that that keep you going and 
you know, give you joy. But in the end, it's really people give me joy. I do think the distresses of the dogs is good. But the reason that works is that you go out for a walk and you forget everything. And it's really good for your mental health. So I do believe that. And I'm afraid that I have nothing um, that would be very exciting other than that to add. (laughs) I think that's more than enough. Well, look, Marianne, you're certainly an inspiration to me. And what I hear when I talk to you is that you are a people person. You're strong in relationships. This compassionate leadership really, really shines through. But you've also got uh, to use an Irish expression, get up and go. You know, you're not going to sit about if you think as a nurse things aren't good enough. You're going to make those changes, educate yourself further and get ahead. And you're also very principled. And I hear this tenacity and the ability to problem solve, which is probably why you've led trust in trouble, out of trouble and into success and putting the patient first and learning how to improve and then translating that learning to other people. So I think you are a a fantastic role model and your art of living is an inspiration to not just me, but all the people who listen to this. And hopefully it will inspire other people in your trust, you know, to come up the ranks and take the reins from you one day. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Marvellous. I genuinely will. It's been it's very gracious of you. So thank you very much indeed for taking the time. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And I really hope that my listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you so much. All the best. Bye bye. And thank you to all my listeners. I hope you've enjoyed that and you've learned a little bit and got an insight into, you know, a true role modeler in the health sector as as I have. And join me next week when I'll be interviewing Dr. Boone Lim, who has written a book published by Penguin on the Healthy Heart. And he's an inspirational leader also. And if you do wish to leave any feedback, please feel free to do so at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.